Dope. Kiff. Draw. Stuff. Dank. Tea. Green. Chiba. Endo. Nug. Herb. Mota. Chronic. Bud. Ganja. The Devil's Lettuce. Sinsamia. Sticky. Icky. Wacky. Tobacky. Hashish. Mary Jane. Reefer. Grass. Pot. Weed. Indica. Sativa. Edibles. Vape. Flower. Cannabis. And marijuana. Whatever you need. However you absorb it. Whoever sells it to you, I mean, unless you grow your own, of course, whether it be legal or not, it is undeniably one of the largest selling commodities in the world, has been since the 50s. We sit on the precipice of a new frontier in American business. What was once a literal cash crop is now becoming a sustainable and respectable entrepreneurial enterprise with a farm-to-market paradigm consistent with any ordinary produce you'd find at your local grocery store. And with that comes the usual sidebar businesses employed to generate the steady flow of commerce. The buzzards previously examined those few insurance companies willing to work with growers, distributors, and sellers. On this episode, we'll be discussing Sean Stifel's cannabis-focused hedge fund, Navy Capital, something that would have been ludicrous to think about nearly five years ago. What's more, we are also being joined once again by cannabis industry expert Brian Jones, and he's back by popular demand. So put that in your pipe and smoke it and inhale another episode of $5 Buzz. Step inside, lock the door behind you, and please make sure the towel is properly positioned. Uh, you're stepping in once again on $5 Buzz. Uh, my name is George Kursar, and uh, I come to you from Fairfield, Connecticut today. Uh, Pete Liska, how are you, sir? How is Santa Barbara treating Santa Barbara is great. Uh, we are up here on what is what the kids call a baby moon. Um, wife is having a baby in five weeks, so we came up for a couple days, got a nice hotel, and... Uh, She's at the beach currently, and I'll be joining her after we, uh, we finish up here. Excellent. Well, I hope you really enjoy this uh, last few weeks of not being a dad. Your life is going to change <laughs> tremendously, but uh, it's never going to be the same. So uh, enjoy every second of it. Roger, how are you today, sir? I'm great. You know, I'm in Van Nuys cat sitting for a couple of friends of ours. I just got married recently right. as they're on their honeymoon, and they're in Italy as of today. So, uh, yeah, just uh, hanging out and watching a shit ton of movies. Great. Um, good to hear. And we're welcome back on this episode. Uh, as we're calling this the cannabis episode part two, it was a very popular episode with our listeners. So we wanted to uh, bring Brian Jones back again. Brian Jones comes to us. Uh, you're Brian, you're, are you currently in North Carolina? Is that correct? Well, today I'm in Atlanta. I'm at uh, at the office, new office at the new company that we talked about last time. So. Right. 
And can you just, uh, if you don't mind, would you mind just giving everybody a brief refresher uh, on, you know, what your kind of role is at this point in time uh, as it relates to the cannabis industry? Sure. So uh, as everybody can recall, I started underwriting directors and officers insurance for the cannabis industry in 2017, um, been involved in the industry since then, um, and then recently uh, went over to a new company called QuadScore, and we are providing more capacity to a capacity-starved market. So been doing a lot of work uh, reviewing companies and, and laws, and um, it's been quite exciting. Right. And it's uh, interesting that um, today, as we record this, new, this, the great state of New Jersey is uh, making a lot of announcements as it relates to uh, cannabis on the recreational side, I believe. But a man that we've also invited to join and we're very lucky to have is Sean Steeple, who, Sean, are you in Westport, Connecticut? I'm in Westport, Connecticut. Wow, man, I just moved not too far down the street. We'll have to meet up at uh, Geronimo's or uh, Zudo's at some point. for a drink. Sounds good you. to me. Hudson yeah. Malone is my spot. Great, man. Um, so, Sean, you and I have known each other a little bit. We both met, I want to say it was like around like, I want to say like 2014 or 2015. You might remember better than me. I was working at Jeffrey's, yeah. uh, which for the folks that may not be familiar is an investment bank. and. Uh, they were having a really good run in the IPO space uh, at that point in time. And I think, Sean, before you got into the cannabis space, you, were, you had more of a traditional um, finance, New York, Wall Street, for lack of a better term, career. Would you mind just giving the folks, uh, the listeners, just a little origin story about yourself, uh, yeah. you know, how you grew up? And I know that you went to USC undergrad. So uh, maybe if you just take a couple of minutes to tell your story. Yeah, sure. Um, Jersey guy, born in Princeton, New Jersey, ended up going to USC, as you said, for college and um, always thought that I wanted to get back into the world of stock picking and went down a pretty traditional path out of school, worked at a big investment bank, worked at a big hedge fund, worked at another hedge fund, and then ultimately came to the conclusion I wanted to run my own money and run my own ideas. And so I started AP Capital in 2014, really focused on traditional investing. Um, nothing more sexy than that. Got a call in 2016 from one of the Canadian brokers that we were doing business with who literally said, if you like making money, take this meeting. I, I like making money. So I took the meeting. It ended up being the first company out of Uruguay, Uruguay being the first country in the world to go fully adult use legal, was doing a pre-IPO raise. Uh, we took the meeting kind of for entertainment purposes more so than anything and by the end of it said if one percent of what these guys say is true it's a home run i uh, ended up investing pre-money at kind of a 40 million dollar valuation company went public four months later at about 160 million dollar valuation subsequently was acquired for about 300 million and kind of said to myself what is this cannabis thing um, so really tried to get up to speed as fast as I can through 2016, going all over the world, Israel, Australia, Europe, of course, Canada, to kind of see what the landscape was. Because at the time, in 2016, California hadn't gone legal yet. You hadn't really seen any of the mass movements. And so you're still talking about like a quasi-medical market in the United States with legality issues and different things. And so by the end of 16, kind of came to the conclusion I could be the, to George's point, the 100,000th hedge fund, or I could be the first cannabis fund. And so we went all in. 
And uh, May of 17, we launched our cannabis fund with less than 10 million bucks, just cognizant and getting up and running. Today, we run about 400 million and we're the largest cannabis hedge fund out there. Um, we invest predominantly today in US kind of quote unquote plant touching operators, MSOs, single state operators, brands. I'm on the board of several of them. And we have the luxury of being able to invest both in public markets and private markets. And so have sort of seen it all over the years. And um, I think where the industry in general is really in the early, early stages of where we're going. And, you know, you can quantify that. You've got 24 billion of legal sales. You probably still have about 70 billion of illegal sales. Uh, and that's before we talk about your mom, your sister, your friend who's never used cannabis being able to kind of come into the arena via something that feels more normal, more like alcohol, less risky to them. So we think the market from here is an easy 4X and uh, pretty excited about what we're seeing. That's great. And I know Pete and I were talking about uh, some of what's going on in New Jersey and I'll let him uh, uh, ask you guys some questions about that. But Sean, just really quickly, what was it like in the early days of you pitching your uh, ideas and your firm and your funds? Were you faced with a lot of skepticism? I mean, I know in you know the 2014, 15, 16, obviously everyone was a lot more receptive to marijuana, but with the fact that it's not federally legal, it wasn't legal in as many states as it is now, could you just tell us what it was like as you were going in on those meetings? Was there a degree of anxiety or hesitation uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think in a lot of ways, not much has changed. Um, you're still not seeing large institutional investors come into the space. You're seeing more for sure today than before. But I mean, when we started the fund, I think a lot of people didn't take it seriously. A lot of people didn't understand what was happening. The analogy I like to use is it's very similar to online gaming and what you've seen or online gambling and what you've seen with the normalization of sort of the sports books of the world and, and iLottery and iGaming. Um, people think it's taboo, but then they look under the hood and they realize there's real benefits, not only to kind of the economics here, but also to people getting them off of opioids, getting them off of alcohol dependency. And so I, I think over time, it, it's no longer people are laughing, but for sure you still, because of the federal illegality, 95% plus of the investor universe cannot own these stocks. Most people can't wake up and buy them in their own brokerage account, can't buy these stocks on Robinhood. And so that in and of itself is a huge opportunity when the gates open, but, you know, I would say to you, I think the stigma is gone, but the operational and the legal barriers are still very much there. And the institutional capital has yet to really come into the space in any meaningful way. So we're in the very early innings, uh, obviously, it sounds like, but it seems like uh, it, it, we're, the institutional money is warming up to this and maybe someday, you know, 401ks and mutual funds will have positions and exposure to marijuana, uh, which is exciting because, you know, like our, our previous episode, we were talking to Will Hershey about video games and online gambling and sports gambling. There's a lot of money coming into the economy, and it's great that there's opportunity for some of these new businesses to get up and running and things that weren't possible, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago are possible. Uh, Brian, do you remain uh, confident about, you know, I know you started at a new firm. Are you seeing a lot of change? And I know 
uh, we mentioned New Jersey, but is that a pretty big tipping point? You know, New Jersey is, I think, the eighth largest state in terms of population. And we know everyone in New York is going to be crossing the border to make purchases of recreational weed the same way that they're driving across to bet on the USC Iowa game. I know you guys probably had some money probably on that 2019 match, right? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. <laughs> it's an interesting thing um, with New Jersey coming online. New York's obviously going to be chasing on their tails, Connecticut as well. Um, do I think people are going to cross the board? I don't think they'll have to soon. You talk about the new, the new states coming on. A lot of the, the Cure Leafs of the world, the GTIs, they're all buying up uh, stakes in these states. And, you know, I, I had watched an interview with Sean and him talking about how, you know, the big players are, are kind of the, the bell cows at this point. So they're going to they're going to gobble up licenses. They're going to gobble up operations. And and we're going to have a lot of consolidation. What I'm what I'm seeing right now is the first eight months of this year has been, you know, a cash uh, frenzy. There's been a lot of raises. Um, there's been a lot of consolidation. Um, and I think we're just getting started Uh you have the true leave harvest deal. That's just, that's a massive deal. I don't think people understand, you know, outside the cannabis world, how big that deal is uh, with true leave being a monster in Florida. Now they're going to touch, you know, over 10 States, um, you know, Pennsylvania, I think a bigger thing in the Northeast is Pennsylvania's market is, is, is going to be fun to watch. They're, they're full medical now, obviously, but just when they go recreational, just the, the, the population in that states. So if you've ever driven across Pennsylvania, it's a long drive. Um, so, you know, what's, what I find interesting now is going to be the consolidation. Uh, it's going to be the, the bigger players. I did a call last week with a player who, you know, they, they want to get into this and it's, it's an established money player. A lot of Canadian companies that are, are getting options on companies in the States that the deal that was just announced by Tilray to buy up MedMen's debt, um, that's an interesting play, uh, and then MedMen turn it around and say we're going to we're going to raise 100 million. So there's there's a lot of movement in terms of consolidation and money raising that is just getting started. Right. Um, One of the things that has to happen, though, right? I mean, my question is, it's still on the controlled substance list. It's still, you know, at, at the highest order of controlled substances like heroin, and. Uh, I mean, I think that has to change before we're able to make it a federal possibility. What do you think about that? So, yeah, I think the the, the act that was introduced in the, in the Senate, it's interesting. If you read through it, the the big negatives about that are the taxation, right? You're you're not really getting rid of a black market if you're going to tax this at the rates that they're talking. Um, full federal legalization. I know we talked about it a little bit last time. Yeah that's going to be a sticky situation. There's a lot of States out there that probably want to create their own rules, just like Colorado and California and these other States that have come online now are doing, you know, Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, those are some Southern States. They're, they're moving pretty quick. Texas is going to probably follow along, at least getting to the medical point, like, like Florida is. And the, again, these are just my opinions, but I think that there's a lot of people that are going to call for this federal legalizations probably won't happen out of this bill, but there's going to be some changes, I would guess, in terms of insurance uh, laws, banking, IRS, um, uh, leeway to help people, uh, you know, with handling the money, you know, you don't want to see 
armored cars of cash running around to old bank vaults anymore. So I think, you know, if you, there's a lot of good analysis of that article, I'm sorry, of that bill that will show you this is going to come in baby steps. Full federal legalization, I think, is a ways away. I'd love to hear Sean's uh, opinions on that since he's been as involved as I have, you know, in the last five years, if not more. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo what you're saying. I think they, they shot the moon on this bill, asking for everything, knowing that they, they're not going to negotiate against themselves. And so in that sense, like you, you're going to probably get some form of a banking allowance, meaning that these companies can bank legally, they can take credit cards, you know, ideally they can list on major exchanges, um, but you're also going to need to give something in terms of social equity, criminal justice reform and getting people out of jail. So, I, I mean, that is not an easy, that's not an easy thing to do, um, either logistically or just even what does that even mean? So I, I think there's a lot to hash out. And I think part of the reason the stocks have been so weak over the last kind of month and a half since the bill came out was people looked at it and said, wow, they're so far from finding something that they can agree to, uh, which, you know, I, I do think there's pressure now because at the end of the day, if you're going to try to help the communities that have been most disenfranchised, if they can't open a bank account and they can't get a loan and they can't start a business, there's nothing to even talk about here. So I, I do think that's like the core starting point is you got to make it so that businesses have a viable shot. You know, this is a tough industry period to build a profitable business. And so if you're talking about a scenario where you're giving out licenses for free to certain communities, you know, they're walking into a very, very tough environment. And so you need to support them, um, not make it such that they can't get a bank account, they can't get payroll. You know, in my case, you know, for instance, I can't get life insurance and I don't even work directly in the industry. And so there, there's all sorts of things that people have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. What, what happens to your fund when it, if, if it goes federally legal? Is that a good thing? Or is it, are you still, is it still up in the air? I'm, yeah, I mean, look, I, I always joke and say that there, there's different parts of that question. So I think the first reaction is the best day in the fund's history will be the day that these, start, these stocks start trading on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. I think that will be a, a huge uptick for us. Um, then you have to start thinking to yourself, what does full federal legalization mean? Does it mean we're going to have cross-border, meaning product from California can be sold in New York or New Jersey or Maine? Uh, if that happens, there's definitively parts of our portfolio that do incredibly well, and there's the parts of our portfolio that will take a hit. And so we're always kind of playing out these scenarios, and one of the reasons we like to be public and private is to reposition around those things. I mean, you know, th there's huge overhang risks. We could wake up one day and vape disappears. We could wake up one day and beverage is outlawed because the kid died. We, I mean, not that that's ever happened or would happen, but I mean, these are the types of risks that you're dealing when you have a controlled substance. And so that's kind of how we're thinking about it. I think it, these stocks will re-rate. They're the cheapest stocks by growth on earth and it, it doesn't make sense where they are. But then you have to start thinking about if you're playing chess, and all this product is now coming from California and Oregon, what happens to these $100 million groves in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? Yeah, <clears throat> but it, it, at the same time, I was thinking about things like cigarettes and booze. Both are federally legal, yet each state has completely different set of rules for how they deal with it. There are even some dry counties, you know, that won't sure. allow drinking at all. 
there is, uh, you know, New York and Los Angeles and California have higher taxes on cigarettes and, and booze. What's it called? Um, what's that tax called? Vice tax? Excise tax. Yes. And, you know, so, I, I, you know, I, I don't see that playing out any different. I mean, as, and you can buy booze and cigarettes online. The difference is that all those cigarettes are generally made at the same place. So they may be retailed differently. So like if you, if you break it down, cigarettes and cannabis, you grow it. So, you know, you got your tobacco leaves, you got your cannabis plants, then you got to make it into something and then you got to retail it. And so, you know, with cigarettes in general, the same person is doing steps A, B, and then going into the kind of the C stores. In cannabis, you could have the same person doing all three. You could have the same person doing one of each. And so the question is kind of how does that lie? You could have direct to consumer. You can have online delivery. I mean, there, there's so many different variables. Um, I agree with you that retail won't be as effective because at the end of the day, like you're going to go to your local store. It doesn't matter what the product on the shelves is, but the product itself is very vulnerable. And if we see what's happening in cannabis, which is incredibly fast growth in direct to consumer and delivery, you know, the entire alcohol penetration for delivery right now is like sub 3%. And alcohol has been around forever. Cannabis in California is very closely, very quickly getting towards 25%. So you just have like a new medium for the consumer and all these things could be very disruptive over any period of time. Yeah, Sean, I just, oh, I just got an order of, uh, from Ease just the other day. I was just going to say, <laughs> Roger, you and I both get delivery. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, Once you know what you want, why go to a store? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sean, I, I had a question for you. I, I, since you know this as well as anyone, um, the Canadian uh, growing pains that they that they experience. Do you think that's going to happen here? Um, over overpopulate, not overpopulation, but overbuilding of of cultivation, um, and and just kind of like I, I look at some of the companies in Canada where they million dollar oper million dollar square foot operations are just they're just dead right now because yeah. they just couldn't scale it up. And I just want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I do. And I actually think it is happening in real time as we speak. I think what's happening is the price of wholesale, for instance, in California has come in a lot. And so what you're seeing is growers in order to sell a product above wholesale need to control their shelf space. So now all of a sudden in California, there's a huge rush to get vertical and own your shelf space, meaning buy retail or buy an e-commerce platform or, or integrate within one. And this was inevitable. I mean, you, you know, if I started my own alcohol, it's going to be very, very hard to get into Costco, right? It's the yeah. same concept. And I, I think we're seeing that play out pretty fast. And one big lesson that I, I've kind of learned over the last year or so is, you know, I used to believe this was very similar to alcohol and you had your top shelf, your middle shelf, your bottom shelf. And the consumer wanted to buy in each price point. But I think the difference with cannabis, I think there's premium and then there's everything else. And so I, I really do believe that the consumer is less discerning as it relates to quality below a certain price point. They just want the most THC or they want that strain or they want whatever it is for the cheapest price. And so that I think is a big difference, which is forcing people to try to figure out how to get margin. And the only way to get margin or get your product even sold is to control the environment where it's being sold. Yeah, like my habit is I, I just use gummies. I mean, that's that's my sole, sole thing. So what I mean by that is there are, um, I can see how 
the difference between premium, I'm not, I don't care about other than what strain it is, whether it's Indica or whether it's Sativa, you know, that's it. I mean, for me, that's my only, that's about as far as I go is about whether I care or not, you know, and whether how much, how many milligrams it has, right? 10 milligrams versus 2.5 versus five milligrams of THC. I take about 40 milligrams at a clip. So that's uh well it's like anything else i mean you have connoisseurs that will that will have their their you know their high-end stuff that they want to do and then you have everybody else so i can totally see that but do you see the the you know you're talking about how tobacco has well point a b and c in like it's the it's the one company that does it all is that going to start happening with marijuana growers are they going to start growing packaging selling lobbying and everything else to to get to corner and become like the the common household name of marijuana across the country once it becomes legal so i mean you have business models and business models that are already built for that because they're mandated by the state so in florida for instance you have to grow you have to process you have to retail all under the same roof or sorry, under the same banner i should say um so there are business models that are already queued up for that I think inevitably it's a free market and certain people will specialize and be better at certain aspects of it. And that to me seems more logical. Um, that being said, you know, it's very possible somebody just is so efficient and is able to extract such good economics being fully vertical. It makes sense. Um, we are not seeing like, I don't know if there's an MSO, a multi-state operator today that could pull it off across all 50 states if we went legal. And so we're, we're still a long way away from that kind of scale, but you are seeing certain growers in California that, you know, in the scenario we went legal, they could pretty quickly get up to speed to get enough product out the door to get to 50 states. So it, we'll, we'll get there. I think nothing is imminent though. I mean, is it even something you want? You know, I mean, it, it's like anything else. It's a, it's a product that should be fresh and probably local. Yeah, the, the answer to that is, you know, to Roger's point, if you're having a gummy, you don't really care, right? You're just, you, you know, in general, it's getting a little more sophisticated now, but in general, you're just taking milligrams of THC, which even today is fairly commoditized and you can buy pretty cheap. And so if we're talking about what we're seeing in the marketplace, which is consumers are moving off of smokables, specifically vapes, and into beverage and into edibles, yeah, it doesn't really matter um, where it's coming from because it's just an active ingredient. You know, it may be grown in a lab one day. So it, we're, we're definitely evolving. And I think the risk here is to the smokable segment. I think actually flour is far more insulated than vape because consumers in general want to know what's going into their body. And when you've got some sort of viscous liquid, nobody knows what the hell's in it necessarily. Yeah, I still I think agree. I still I, think premium flour is going to dominate. You know, those people that can cultivate it, they're going to dominate that. You know, that line of, of flour. But I agree with Sean on the 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 gummies, the drinks, everything like that. It's it's going to be commoditized pretty quick. But I also do think it's important that each state has their own um, uh, flair to it. Like you know, if you're going to California, California is the first place I saw. Um, joints that had, um, you know, hash oil in them, right? That's the first place I saw them. I'm sure they existed, but that that was something that I found in California. Or if, or if you go to, you know, Colorado and you find a brand you like, and you know, just slapping a brand on 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 a flower because it was grown like it is in another state, 
Well, yeah, um, I mean, going back to kind of, you know, the, the analogy that I, I keep using with our investors is if you talk about gambling, right? Like you can have a dominant market share and be one casino operator in New York and have no presence in Las Vegas or no presence in Michigan, whatever it might be. I mean, I think there is local loyalty and there is a value to the physical location itself, but it's definitely going to consolidate and it's definitely not going to be the way it is now where you've got thousands of operators the same way there's not very many mom and pop casinos those will get bought if they're out there right well is there an analogy to be made with uh cannabis the same way that um i guess we would call it the craft brew uh phenomenon is exists you know obviously inbev anheuser-busch molson um, the, the big uh, distributor out of Mexico, the name is escaping me, that makes uh, Modelo. There's a couple of, right, there's a lot of massive um, conglomerates out there, but when you go out into the world and you go into your local liquor store or, um, you know, good Bodega, liquor store. Yeah, good liquor <laughs> store, there's a lot of beer out there. Is that going to be the dynamic with marijuana there used to be more though too in the 90s it was really big craft beers in the early 2000s i see them less and less now because they all got bought up just like all the indie bands in the 90s by the corporate you know all these all these minor craft beers if they were any good all got bought up by those big distributors i agree yes obviously that did happen but there's still a lot of shelf space dedicated to, you know, the tree houses of the world or the uh, Southern tiers. And, you know, I'm not that well-versed. Maybe these guys are backed by conglomerates. Maybe they did get bought up. I know Blue Point Brewery got bought and a lot of other smaller uh, brands got bought, but will marijuana, will there be an opportunity for small startups or, and a second part of that question, is there a massive conglomerate uh, S&P 500 constituent uh, like an Anheuser-Busch or a Philip Morris waiting to just come in and own the space. You know, is that is that where you guys see this? Yeah, going? I mean, look, I, I think the, the craft beer analogy makes total sense. Like the reality is a lot of those craft beers are owned by these conglomerates. But, you know, in Connecticut, you've got local Connecticut beers that people want to drink. You've got local beers in Missouri, wherever, you know, wherever you go. I think cannabis will always be able to support a local craft community. Uh, similar to what we were just talking about with the financial aspect, it's very difficult to do this business because of the illegality, the lack of banking, the tax regime. Uh, so it's not as easy to stand these up, but in the future, I, it's not crazy to think like it looks just like craft beer. We've got the same craft beers in every liquor store and then you've got the local guys. Um, so th that to me seems totally logical. I think we're seeing that in California and there's definitively a handful of guys that we think are going to survive that premium category and they're, they're not going to be in every dispensary, but people will seek them out and they will pay a premium price for it. And so definitively, I think you're right in terms of like the large conglomerates. I mean, you, you know, you, you are seeing guys dip their toe in. I mean, in Canada, you've got deals with British American Tobacco, you've got deals with Altria, you've got deals with uh, AB InBev, um, nothing like that. It's no moving beyond the constellation deal of canopy growth, which is the biggest in the space. But, you know, we know for a fact everyone's looking. We know for a fact people are getting up to speed. We're actually seeing more and more people leave the beer, or the alcohol industry to come into cannabis. So you're seeing a lot of those resumes. 
And so I, I do think it's inevitable. Um, I, I think it's a more logical jump from alcohol to cannabis than it is from tobacco to cannabis because of all the negative health health associations with tobacco. And you know, I, I think there's a lot of stigma that cannabis is actually trying to go the opposite way from and be more of a wellness product. So um, we'll see what happens inevitably, but you know, this is a hundred million dollar industry and you know, those don't just pop up every day. So you're saying that big tobaccos, are they trying to buy up a lot of cannabis companies or not? I mean, well, yeah, I mean it seems like a natural seen, extension, even though you just said. Yeah, you've seen Ultra, you've seen British American Tobacco, you've seen Imperial, you've, you've seen them all weighed in slowly. Um, again, Constellation being on the alcohol side, by far the biggest bet. But I mean, without a doubt, people are watching, you know, global tobacco usage is not growing. Right. And there's only more regulation along with that. So, I, and these guys are a flush of cash and they have businesses that generate a lot of cash. So it, it makes total sense. And you're definitely seeing them at the conferences and seeing them kind of dip their toe in. Um, but like anything, you know, a billion dollar acquisition for them doesn't really move the needle. And so if you're them, wouldn't you wait until you know who kind of the winners are and who's going to be at the table in five years? And I think that's, you know, back to the consolidation point, that's where we are right now. You know, me and my job, my job is to bet on who's going to be at the table. Uh, and this is what I do for a living. But these tobacco guys, they're, they're still not ready to make that bet. I think they're, they're getting up to speed. They're learning. But, um, you know, they'd rather pay a couple billion more and make sure they're right than waste their time doing this. Yeah, Brian, my, go ahead. I was going to say, Brian and uh, Sean, feel free to weigh in as well. Uh, is there a certain type of entrepreneur or demographic or age range? It seems like the marijuana and maybe the old school uh, InBev and alcohol conglomerates are kind of like an older generation. Is it fair to say that most of the folks coming in, whether it be the Canadians or the, is this like a younger mindset? What's the mindset of the business person and maybe these LLCs that are getting off the ground and bringing the product to the market. What are you guys seeing? Like what type of people are we talking about here? I think one of the most interesting things about cannabis is if, if we took like a, a smattering of, of what you're asking about and, and put them in a room, it would be every walk of life imaginable. The Ivy League, the, the former convicts, you name it, we've seen it. Um, the guys that are really getting off the ground right now are the ones that have a business model that makes sense given the regulatory environment and the guys that are able to get capital. I mean, the, the biggest issue for startups right now is capital and figuring out exactly where to play. You know, there, there's a lot of brands in California that will go to zero because they're not gonna get the shelf space. They're not gonna be able to get even the product to brands. Uh, and so I think it's the entrepreneurs that understand exactly where they're playing in the value chain and then the guys that are hungry. Cause I, I do think it's still a very kind of push and shove type industry where you got to figure out how to get in there and it's only getting more competitive every day as those shelf space agreements get taken so i, I think the answer is you see everything the ceos we like the most are generally the ones that are more afraid to fail than who want to be rich and so we, we see that the guys that are taking the leap and coming into the industry who don't want to put their head down and, and, and crawl back to finance or crawl back to consulting those are the guys that we like to bet on and so that's my take, but, you know, curious your side, Brian. 
Yeah, um, <clears throat> my hope is that we don't have this massive consolidation. You know, I went into a, a dispensary and I was in Santa Barbara and I went into a dispensary and there were so many brands there. It just, it, it's overwhelming. And I, I hope, you know, that it doesn't turn into the, you know, you can go in and buy 10 different things. I, I do like going in and seeing if there's 50 different options for, you know, the five different, what, how many ever different categories, if there's, you know, 10 different uh, brands of flour, 10 different brands of edibles or oils, uh, tinctures, all those things. I think that create, the, th the thing I'm drawn to is just the assortment that you get in the cannabis industry and, and everybody trying to, 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 to put out their best product and see if they can win. Now, I know there's going to be winners and losers, but I think there's a lot of charm in that. I think that there's a, uh, there's a, there's a, another faction of people coming in with the, with, you know, NBA players who are starting funds and, and Chris Weber, who has his fund going. Um, I think it's going to add a lot of flair to the industry. I think it keeps it and, and, and fresh. So I hope that we, we have some time before we get there, but I, sadly, I, I bet you I'm wrong. My, my fantasy of, you know, this, you, you know, marijuana utopia is probably going to end sooner than later, but that's been the exciting part about being in it is, just watching the roller coaster ride that it's been and, and watching these, these brands go up and down and, and the ones that get more shelf space and survive. I hope that never goes away. That's why I hope that the federal legalization kind of stays away and lets states figure it out themselves. Because if you let, if you let the, the, the companies kind of, uh, you know, figure it out themselves, you, the winners and losers will happen on their own and they won't be kind of forced. I think that's kind of the beautiful, beautiful part of cannabis is it's not, dominated by you know Budweiser Bud Light I think it's fun to watch going to you know Colorado and my favorite brand being Veritas right or going to California and, and that the hash uh, joints and you know just the different the assortment that the assorted ways that you can go and buy this product I think separates it from those other things there's a there's a real um, you know romantic part of it for me because it's just a, it's a lot of fun to to see this. Yeah, the neighbor next door brought over this uh, brand called Fuzzies. Familiar with those? Is that the the, the joints? It, yeah, there's a joint dipped in a carp. Looks like a carpet of hash. Yes, it's sort of branched yeah. over it. That's a yeah. lot of fun. Well, yeah, yeah one thing, that's fun. You should try, <laughs> you should stop your gummy uh, uh, obsession and try that out. <laughs> Let us know. How it goes. One one thing that's interesting though is um, if you talk about all this, like the packaging everything you you know you have two you have a few different types of packaging you have packaging that you can see has like a medical kind of vibe to it and i think i don't know if that's by virtue of a lot of these states that were medical only once so there's a lot of information about the thc and the turpines and everything else that goes on and into it and then there's but you are now starting to see like a little goofier and and, and marketing driven styles of you know gummies and joints and everything being sold now it does bring up the topic of regulation, though, and when the, when the Fed, if if the Fed does ever legalize, is it only medicinal, or and if it is medicinal, is that worse than like a blanket legalization all all across the board? I think the, the answer is you know to your point about packaging first. I mean, I live in Connecticut. You, and I'm a medical patient in Connecticut, you can't even call a strain by the strain name. You have to basically call it some, some very homogenous indical A, sativa B. It's with no colors, no nothing. And so 
you know, certain states have taken a very hard line. I mean, a lot of people and a lot of lobbying dollars have said, well, you know, you don't want to get edibles in the hands of kids. You don't want names that sound like candy and whatnot. And that probably makes its way into some form of federal advertising laws, because again, you know, people are going to be very sensitive around the kid issue and getting it into the hands of minors. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about a product that there, there is going to be some fun element and there's going to be some sort of like new creativeness. And, you know, if you are going to get people convinced that this is a safer alternative for sure to opioids, but potentially even to alcohol and tobacco, um, then, you know, it's hard for me to, to look, take someone seriously and say, we're going to overregulate that versus what you see in a liquor store. Uh, and especially now that, you basically have hard liquor available in every store because of the, the prevalence of hard seltzer and you know the different things and the ways they figured out to work around those rules. It's going to be really hard to see that. So you know, on the advertising side, I think they'll allow some advertising, but the candy, the kids stuff, that probably goes. And then to your question about you know what legalization actually means I, I again this is why i think in general the space has been so weak from the stock perspective is people are like wow it's a really big question what does it mean i mean there's for sure a scenario where medical legalization only actually makes things much worse to be an operator um but i, I think what we want to see is just making cannabis no longer illegal and if that happens, that really opens things up. We don't need to say, you know, X, Y, and Z is what we call legal cannabis. We just need to say, hey, you know, cannabis in any form is not illegal. Um, but then you, of course, if it's no longer illegal, why aren't you going to still see the black market thrive, right? And, and you see a version of that in Oregon right now. So there, there's a lot of questions about how do you deal with it? I mean, I, I keep going back to at the end of the day, me, my wife, whoever, we want to know what we're buying and what we're putting into our body. Uh, and that's the biggest tell. And likewise, you know, hopefully these supply chains get big enough and, and to kind of crush Brian's uh, dreams a little bit. If the supply chains get big enough, then they're going to be cheap enough to compete against somebody that's not paying a 40% tax rate. And that's kind of, that's the issue. You know, I think one thing people don't realize is if I want to make my own gin or make my own beer, it's really freaking hard. You know, if I want to just put a plant in my windowsill, it's not that hard. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a much more difficult black market to keep out of the game than it is alcohol. And so you have to thread the needle there where you don't want money going into the wrong hands and you don't want profits going into the wrong hands. Um, but you also want to give people access and not make this astronomically expensive. Just to add to your medical question, one of the interesting things that's happened this year is the DEA giving out permits to some growers, the you know, third-party growers. You know, they're going to start doing research on it, and and I'll be curious to see where that goes because University of Mississippi's had it for years, and now they're you know there's a big operation in New Mexico I know has been given uh, a permit, but I'll be curious to see where that goes. Where the it's feds always New that. Mexico, always, always New, New Mexico. Mexico. It's always in Area 51, right? Yeah. I'll be curious oh. to see what they what they have up their sleeve. They're up to something with it, um, if it's some sort of medical research. And another curious thing is is there's such a stigma for the, for marijuana, but you're seeing mushrooms and uh, those types of companies being listed on exchanges. It's it's strange, and and they're doing the same sort of medical benefits of that, right? Um, so it's it's curious that we don't get more leeway with 
cannabis in the medical realm, biotech realm, but you know everybody seems to be okay using the uh, the the mushroom route. So the, the psychotropic drugs are gaining speed as they far are. as uh, getting to the, I think the main that They look to be gaining speed, but if you actually look at their business models, they're they're more analogous to what GW Pharma was doing, which yeah. was on a major exchange, and they are to what Cureleaf is doing, for instance. And so they're running man, you know, federally legal drug trials, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the United States, sometimes in the Netherlands, sometimes in the UK or wherever. Um, so they're not violating any federal laws. And it, it's much, much more of a biotech healthcare play than cannabis, you know, cannabis investing, which in general is more of a consumer retail play. So it, I, I do agree with you, though, it's having a, its day in the sun. Um, but, you know, if it's anything like cannabis, the process to get anything over the line with regulator is yeah. not fast. <laughs> but it's not an it's an open secret that you know sport tripping out here in Southern California or in California, it's all of California, particularly Northern California, where they do these ayahuasca trips, is heavily advertised. They get, you know, it's it, it's at a compound, they have leaflets, you know, they hand out to people and nobody seems to really give a shit, you know, that they're doing it, particularly in Northern California. I just see that more and more happening in other places. In New Mexico, of course, they were doing, we talked to Strassman, they were doing the DMT experiments for uh, in New Mexico, University of New Mexico. Um, yeah, I just, um, it's, it's funny how some things, it, you won't, I'll never be able to get though, no matter how legal marijuana becomes, I'll never be able to get opiated chocolate tie stick legally ever again, though. I mean, or legally ever. And that was always my favorite weed when I was a kid. It was the, the best weed I ever had. I guess that will still be illegal. There'll still be some things that will be illegal, even with legalization. You know, it's so hard to know. And I, I think <laughs> one other dynamic that people aren't talking about, but again, like if you think about what, what are people going to use 5, 10, 20 years from now, you know, THC tolerance is a real thing. You, you hit a vape all day, you know, after a couple of weeks, that vape's not going to do anything for you. And so I, I think we're seeing that and we're seeing one of the reasons, again, vape is suffering is exactly that. Flour is more potent, edibles can be more potent, drinks, whatever. And so to, to your question, you know, you can have a cancer patient who can consume a thousand milligrams and not get high. And we just don't know what these end products are going to look like. And we don't know when you're taking that type, you know, there's no one alive who's taken an edible for 50 years. Um, So we we don't know what that's going to do to people and what their tolerance is going to be down the line. So we just have a lot of questions left to answer. I disagree with that last statement. 50 years ago is not too long ago. They've been baking chocolate chip cookies with marijuana since the 1960s. So, Right. There have been people that have been 50 that's years fair. alive eating edibles. That's that's a fair point. We could probably get a good uh, uh, study group. Uh, you know, go over <laughs> to your grandpa's house or somebody. You know, get a good study group on that. What's uh, been just, the effect for 50 years of chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> I, I, it's interesting though, but I just sorry, George, real quick about the vape. I mean, I, that's why we stopped vaping is because you know it it isn't. It's a weird and unknown substance, and you'd build a tolerance so quickly it doesn't seem to so and that and that's actually a really good point because mm-hmm. that's going to keep the business changing you're gonna have they're gonna have you're, you're not gonna have your brand of cigs like you know your 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 aunt smoked cools or whatever her whole life you're not gonna that's not that doesn't exist in this world so you don't you know you're gonna have to constantly switch it up and that's gonna 
that lends itself to a competition. But it, I also don't want to see Joe Camel with a joint out of his mouth. I'd rather see more of a med medical labeling, I guess, or clarity on the labeling than a goofy something targeted towards kids, you know? Can't yeah, guys, I was, I was just going to say, if you guys want to take a quick break, and because uh, I know we've gone, we've blown Wheel. past minutes. So if we want to take a quick break and then we'll just do a little bit more. I just had, I know I have one question I want to ask. And then Roger, Pete, if there's anything you guys want to cover. Yeah, we could take a break and do a wrap up. Yeah. All right. Great. Uh, I'm going to just hit pause real quick and I'll be right back. I really have to use the bathroom. That's where I ran out. I was like, ah, I got to go right back, guys. All right, we're back with Sean and Brian and the buzzards talking all things cannabis, regulation, fed, and everything in between. Even some mushroom talk in there, too. Um, I know um, we're getting towards the end here, guys, but uh, I know George had another question. Fire away. Yeah, Sean, I'm glad, you know, it's not a great topic, but you brought it up. a couple. I've heard you mention it a couple of times, and it's been on my mind, is uh, the opioid, marijuana as an alternative to opioid addiction which i mean it makes plenty of sense to me and i'm not that smart i don't even have a regents diploma do you think that the pfizers of the world the sackler family that was paying off just about every politician world leader philanthropist ivy league institution were those in, uh sort of companies in the way of repressing marijuana and we're seeing obviously there are medical benefits that are not ruining lives and destroying civilization like the opioids are. Were those sort of big, massive, and Brian, you can weigh in here too, um, were these big organizational Pfizer Dow component, were they in the way? Is this why marijuana was not um, acceptable no, for the I, I think it actually, it's even bigger than that. I think it was more systematic racism. You know, marijuana, marijuana with an H, um, was originally what was made illegal effectively to, to control the flow of Mexican migrants into the United States. And so, and then you saw a kind of a renaissance in the 60s and 70s, but then you had all the various crime bills starting in 1979, basically to put as many non-Caucasians in jail as possible for low-level cannabis offenses. So I don't even think they've needed to, frankly. I think that this has now become a newer thing where you're talking about opiate replacement, but in general, marijuana has been very much masked by kind of the, the guise of racism and what that's meant to kind of putting people, incarcerating different communities and oppressing large parts of the population systematically. Sure. It seems like you have a wailing soundtrack yeah. behind you to kind of correspond <laughs> with what you were saying. Well, I mean, George, there is a connection. I mean, there is, know, yeah. There, there, there's a connection there. And, um, you know, we can only hope that, uh, as Sean uh, said early on in the in the in the podcast earlier, that this is going to help. You know, the the rise in use of marijuana and medical use of marijuana is going to help with all these problems. So, well, and, and you, you know, know I guess I'll, I'll end with an anecdote of something that I experienced firsthand two weeks ago. Um, my father was in a bike accident down in Florida, so I flew down there and stayed with him in the hospital. And on the way out of the hospital, they send the doctors in charge of pain treatment to kind of give you kind of like a, a final assessment. And the doctor down in Delray, Florida, basically said, we want you not to take painkillers. We want to give you a medical marijuana card. 
course, being my father, he had a medical marijuana card to be to begin with. But um, you know, it was great to to be in the room when a doctor in when you heard that came in and said and said exactly that. So you know, it's happening. You're seeing it. Um, to what you said earlier about Pennsylvania, I mean, there we think West Virginia because of the opiate instances in in West Virginia is going to be actually a very good mar- marijuana market. We're seeing it in Ohio. Uh, these are really exciting places because there is an element of getting people off of opiates for sure, and it's happening. Yeah, I'm rooting. And- I'm, I'm rooting for DMT to take that over too. So anyway, go ahead. Brian. <laughs> oh, uh, you know. What I wanted to say was, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a long way to go with this. I don't think, you know, we talked about weed being the devil's lettuce the last time. It's not even close <laughs> to that. There's a lot of benefits to it. You're seeing that through COVID. A lot of people, you know, using it at night to sleep because there's a lot of stress in this world. And this stuff, you know, if you if you don't use it, you can notice that it can affect your sleep habits. And some people need it to sleep. And, you know, I think there's more and more people that are learning the benefits of it. And as that as more more time goes, it turns away from this stigma of negativity to this. There's a lot of benefits, and COVID has proven that. And I think COVID has put a little dose of uh, of uh, juice into this into this market, and it's only going to keep going. So, as long as we keep on the trajectory we are, and, and Sean's story is a good one as well. As long as doctors and and you get medical professionals buying into this, which they should, and the more and more research that we get. Uh, at universities and in medical uh, facilities where, you know, the benefits of this are unearthed, you know, those days are going to be these days of opioids and and those are going to be numbered. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think we're getting there guys. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's a good place to almost wrap up. Go ahead. Absolutely. I only had one last question for Sean. Uh, So your fund, is that, is that like an ETF? Is that something it it can, you're saying it cannot be traded on the stock market or or how do, how do, how do hedge funds? So you subscribed into my fund as a limited partner and then you share proportionally in the investments, the fund itself makes. So if, uh, if a regular Joe, uh, a guy like me walking around wants to invest in it, how would they do that? Yeah, so we can't take regular Joes. We have to take (laughs) (laughs) investors. And, you know, there's certain thresholds of the types of people we can take from a legal standpoint. Um, But, you know, if if you ever have any questions about the fund, go to our website, navycapital.com, and uh, you can find someone on there to email. Cool. Thank you, And Sean has been on uh, multiple um, media outlets, CNBC, right, Sean, Bloomberg. So, uh, if you look him up, we'll include a lot of his details in the write-up of this article. And Pete, I think, uh, you know, what Sean was saying that it, from the SEC standpoint, they're just not even letting average Joes go near this. You have to, is that, you have to be an accredited investor. Is that right, Sean? Well, for my fund, yes. Right, but, yeah. you know, but even for these stocks, mm-hmm. most brokerages, most kind of big wirehouses won't even let you trade them. Um, that's not necessarily an SEC requirement because the SEC has actually allowed all of, not all of them, but of several of the major companies to have effective S1s and be SEC registered companies. It's more the decision of the exchanges and the, the brokerages themselves. Yeah. And to, to add on to how backwards some of this is, you know, there was, was a Credit Suisse, Sean, that had to back out of all their positions? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone's had a version of it. Yeah. Um, yeah the, I, I think that's more <laughs> of like just a general risk management thing, given what happened earlier this year if our goes blowing yeah. up. Yeah. But to, but to add to that, you know, you know, the brokerage house I use, you can trade in it. So if you want to know, I can tell you after this, Peter. But um, but some of these companies have lost their foreign private issuer status because over 50% of their, you know, stockholders, shareholders are in the U.S., so they have to file with the SEC like any other company, um, you know, listed on an exchange. So the fact that they can't be on an exchange is just, it's crazy. And not only that, it's its really become a hindrance to these, these MSOs who have to compete with companies in Canada who can raise that institutional money um, on their, you know, on the TSX because they, they don't technically have TSX. Uh, they don't technically have uh, cannabis exposure, but yet they're all setting up these sidecar deals to where they have an option to buy into the U.S. market at a at a you know at a very depressed price because they've set up the sidecar. So, you know the the, the hypocrisy of, of that is not lost on me as I, I look at these companies on a daily basis. Is what are we doing? I mean, it just makes no sense. People want this to be legalized on a medical standpoint alone. So why aren't we letting them invest in it as well? So hopefully we get there sooner than later. That's a great point. Um, well, uh, Roger, did you have, uh, no, I was going to say it about that time, right? Yeah. It's about that time. Uh, Sean, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's been a real, uh, pleasure to talk to you again. I know that, uh, we haven't talked in a while, but, uh, you know, it's always good to reconnect with folks, uh, on different, uh, you know, paths in our journey. So, uh, thank you for coming on, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh you know it would be great for you guys to stay in touch i know you guys probably have a lot of synergy and uh opportunities and good to uh connect so uh i'm glad to see things are changing finally so uh everybody thanks for listening uh i think more cannabis episodes are coming in the future uh so uh please make sure to hit the citrus before you move the towel. We don't want to alert the RA. And thanks for uh, listening. We'll see you guys again soon. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank Take you. Care.